welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back, listeners. We are here in 2021 with our very first episode of the year. We're so pleased to have as our first guest of 2021, Danny Jenkins. So Ben, tell us a little bit about Dr. Jenkins. Danny Jenkins is Associate Professor of Music Theory at the University of South Carolina. He has published research on Elliot Carter, Arnold Schoenberg, and public music theory. A dedicated pedagogue, Jenkins has received teaching awards from the Eastman School of Music, the University of Rochester, and the University of South Carolina. The important question, and the first question that I asked is, well, what is it that they want to learn about, right? Instead of thinking of music theory, instead of thinking as public music theory, and that music theory is this fixed body of knowledge that you can deliver to people and they can receive, think of it as public music theory. Like, what is the... Uh, what is the segment of the public that I'm interested in working with and how might I be able to use my music theoretical knowledge and skills to help that segment of the public? I think when you ask the question that way, then all different kinds of things pop into your mind. So today our very special guest is Danny Jenkins and he's coming to us from the University of South Carolina, the East Coast, USC, right? I That's guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just wanted to open up with uh, kind of asking you a little bit about how you got um, started into theory. Was it a seventh grade career aptitude test that you took that kind of told you, you know, music theory is the way to go? Or was there something a little bit more intuitive? It's funny that you mentioned seventh grade. Um, <laughs> that's when uh, I grew up in Kentucky. And in the county I grew, in, grew up in, that was when you started band. And I had had piano lessons. My mother had put me in piano lessons um, when I was about nine. And so they give you this test and they ask you which pitch is higher and which pitch is lower. You, perhaps some of you have taken that same <laughs> test. And um, so I scored fairly well. And I said, I want to be a percussionist. I want to be a percussionist. They said, no, 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 you'll play French horn. Or it, there, it was not going <laughs> to <Yeah>. be percussion. Um, <laughs> But what happened was I uh, actually went to Catholic school, which didn't have a band program. So to be in band, I had to go to the public school one hour a day. And in the seventh grade, that seventh grade band class conflicted with um, religion class at the Catholic school. Mm. And so uh, my father and mother thought, you know, well, perhaps it's if we're investing in your, you know, your religious education, it wouldn't be the best idea for you to miss your religious class. So um so then in the eighth grade, uh, they got a new band director at that school. And my mother called her and said, you know, my son really loves music. He's had piano lessons. And this year, now in eighth grade, band does not conflict with religion class. Would you consider letting him into the band in the eighth grade? And she said, well, he's had piano lessons. I don't have any percussionists. Would he be willing to play percussion? <laughs> so <laughs> careful what you wish for, I guess. But uh <laughs> Yeah, so my first instrument was percussion. I went to the University of Kentucky, got a bachelor's degree in music education, um, went back to my old high school and was the assistant band director there for three years. 
which is a really wonderful experience. Um, and it was a very active program, you know, the marching band and, and I mean, just if those of you have band experience know how intense that experience can be. And at that school, it was very intense, but at the end of three years, I was ready to move forward with music theory. I had, um, really fallen in love with music theory as an undergraduate student. They had had a music theory award that I had won as an undergraduate and, um, I just really felt that that's what I wanted to do was be a music theory professor. So I went to the University of Louisville and got a master's in music theory and composition. And uh, it was actually at Louisville that I started singing. Um, I had an ensemble requirement for my master's <laughs> degree. And I had been in church choir, but I had never been in a like a collegiate choir at, or choir at that level. And I thought that that would be an important thing for my musicianship. <laughs> so... Um, joined the choir, started singing, went on to Eastman to do my PhD. And it was actually at Eastman that I started studying voice privately. And I studied as a countertenor. Um, oh, wow. I, I was not accepted into a studio at Eastman. I want to make that clear. I studied with a graduate student, <laughs> but he was an excellent teacher. And so um, I really consider countertenor my main performing mm -hmm. medium at this point. Although, you know, I can, you know, I'm a theory teacher, piano player, and... Mm -hmm. um, and a couple of years ago, I did dust off the mallet bag and do a marimba trio <laughs> with a couple of other faculty members. But, um, you know, I think while I'm a jack of all trades, master of none, these skills have served me very well as a music theory teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, both the rhythm mm -hmm. skills for my percussion training and then also the way my ear developed from singing. So I'm very grateful for all those different experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think with a theory teacher, it's it's not the person who's most f furthest away from making music. This person has to really know know it all and has to be able to make it and sing it and play. And so I love hearing um, the stories of theorists and really how how well versed they are in not just theory, but they can they can perform a little bit, they can compose. You know, I think that's great, and I think that kind of um, takes away the stereotype of just this kind of pencil and paper uh, musician that a theory uh, theory teacher often is. Definitely. I think it's interesting too, how many of us start out music ed. I started out music ed and so did Ben and several other of our guests have started out that way too. And because really what we do is still music education. It's just not at the high school or elementary level, right? It's at a, just at a different level. So. Absolutely. And you know, that, that training, not just the, um, music training, but the, the education training has served me very well as well. And Same. so I'm, I've always been extremely grateful for those, for that degree. And for those three years teaching high school, uh, I mean, mm. that was in, that has been invaluable to me in learning how to work with people, um, how to motivate, mm -hmm. you know, I, um, I, I mentioned in one of my job interviews at some point, they said, well, you know, what did you learn from your, from teaching high school band. And I said, well, when you're teaching high school band, your professional success is at the whims of 13 year olds. So you learn a lot of good people skills. <laughs> you know, th this is kind of a cakewalk in a way compared to that. So yeah, that was going to be my reaction about connecting to people and connecting across all of these quote unquote boundaries of choir people, quote unquote, versus band people versus the percussion guy. You know, we've all heard them, but, you know, just to be able to reach out and connect and really genuinely understand what's going on to each of your students. I mean, that's just, it's invaluable, really. Yeah. 
So we wanted to talk to you specifically about um, your work with public music theory. Um, we might want to just start off with defining what that means, because that might be a topic that's new to some. I remember in graduate school never hearing the term public music theory ever come up. Um, and so, you know, what is that? How did you get started in, in doing that? And how has that kind of transformed your teaching? I think my interest in public music theory began through my work on Schoenberg. Um, I edited a collection of Schoenberg's program notes and analyses of his own music. And as part of the editorial process, I needed to contextualize these documents for people. And some of these were letters. Um, some of them were uh, short analytical excerpts and textbooks. But many of them, I was struck by how many of them were written for a public audience in mind. There were program notes. Mm. There were radio lectures. There were um, record jacket liner notes. There was even a script for a television uh, program that was going to be on the BBC uh, that never got recorded. Um, so, you know, the perception of Schoenberg as someone who didn't care, you know, I don't care if you listen, that kind mm -hmm. of perception uh, was just um, completely obliterated through my research. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking, well, who else? you know, has tried to do this, has tried to reach out and and get an audience to better understand. You know, I immediately, of course, think of Leonard Bernstein. But I just yep. started um, trying looking for everything I could find, podcasts, YouTube channels, books, going back into the history. Um, public musicology was already a term at that point. Um, so there was a lot of information or more information about public musicology. And I started thinking about, well, how does public musicology and public music theory intersect? Are they the same thing? Do they intersect? Are they completely distinct? Hmm. Um, so I decided to teach a course in the fall of 2016 that I called public music theory. And, um, and I think, and I wrote an article about that course that people can read in engaging students. And at that time, my idea of public music theory was um, what are media or ways of delivery that people who know music theory can communicate to people who don't know music theory. That was pretty much my vision of what this was. And uh, now I, my, my definition of what music theory in that context was, I think was broader than some people's definition of music theory. Hmm. But it was very much, uh, my models in my mind was the sage on the stage approach, Schoenberg, Bernstein. So when you go and they, they tell you what all this means and you receive that knowledge. Um, but it, coincidentally, in the fall of 2016, I also started uh, teaching music theory at Lee Correctional Facility in Bishopville, South Carolina. And through that experience, uh, working with the men at Lee, um, I have a much broader understanding of public music theory. And so public music theory involves... Um, engaging with public partners. That can be one way that you interpret public music theory. And it's also to me, all the, all these little, I like to call them music theories, but uh, all, the ways that people conceive of music and have conceptions of music. I think these are, there are daily millions of little public theories that happen as people listen to the radio or stream something. And I'm, um, you know, so the work in, in music cognition, I think is very valuable to a deeper understanding of public music theory as well. 
Yeah, I sent uh, Jen and Ben your uh, engaging students article mm -hmm. before we, we had our chat here. And <laughs> I love the, the opening link that you have with the family guy with Stewie singing that yes. song. And, yep. you know, I'm, I'm home, then I'm going away. And he goes to like the minor six. And it's that's that's music theory right there in Family Guy. <laughs> yeah. I, and that happened. I was teaching um, sophomore theory. And we were talking about modulation and I wanted them to understand the concept of monotonality, you know, that yes, you modulate away, but eventually you come back. And that home metaphor has been made many times, but I had, I had seen that clip watching family guy and had stored it in my brain and just the, you know, the kind of world we live in, I could just, I just stopped teaching class and I went over to the computer and I found the clip on YouTube and I was, and I played it and they got it immediately. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I consider that a moment of public music theory. And that's when the, this issue of intention started to play because Bernstein and Schoenberg, they have intentions to be public music theorists. I don't think that Seth MacFarlane had an intention to be a public music theorist. I think that he and his creative team were reacting to an experience they've had listening to music. Seth MacFarlane is actually a fairly good musician himself. So, um, I, you know, I just thought this is something that's accessible to and geared to a general audience. And so for me, it's an example of public music theory. I think that's great. I'm wondering, so, you know, when I think about taking music theory out into the world, there's lots of ideas that come up to, in my mind, but maybe the first one isn't like a prison, a correctional facility, right? So how did you, how did you end up there? What took you to that program and how did you get connected with it? I first became aware of that uh, of the music program at Lee Correctional Facility in the spring of 2016. Um, we, I had a colleague uh, who, well, she's now my colleague at the time she wasn't, but her name is Claire Bryant and she is our cello professor. But at that time she was living in New York and gigging around and she was uh, a member of Dakota, which is the affiliate ensemble with Carnegie Hall. And one of their projects was um, Music for Transformation, which is their prison project. And they had done some things at Sing Sing, but they wanted to find something outside of the New York City area. And Claire mm -hmm. happens to be from Camden, South Carolina, and mm -hmm. um, Bishopville, where Lee Correctional is not very far from there. So she had become aware that they already had an inmate-run music program at the facility. And so she went to visit and Dakota started doing, I think in 2013, these annual um, songwriting residencies with the inmates that were just really impressive. And so in the spring of 2016, a colleague of mine went and watched a couple of days of the residency. And she came back to me and she said, she told me what was happening. And she said, um, I talked to the music leaders, the two men who are running, the, the inmates that are running the music program. And I said, what is it that you really need? And they said, we want to know more about music theory. And I just thought, well, you know, that's something that I know. That's something that I mm -hmm. can do. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a lot of things I can't do, but that is definitely something I can do. So it just started with grabbing some, you know, out of print textbooks off the shelf and, and donating them. But then that summer, the summer of 16, I uh, attended one of their concerts. They do a couple of concerts a year. And it's uh, just to give people the image of this, uh, kind of the central part of the music making is a rock band setup, you know, lead guitar, bass guitar, keys, drums. Mm -hmm. um, and, but they do a variety of genres of music. 
I mean, at one of their concerts, you'll hear covers, you'll hear original songs, you'll hear metal, hip hop, country, folk rock, um, blues, R&B, you name it, you know, it's whatever people's musical tastes are, they're doing it. It was an incredibly inspirational experience. And so after that concert, I spoke with the two music leaders and they said, you know, we would love to get some more music theory lessons sometime. And so um, Lee Correctional is an hour away. And I know in Texas distance, that's not far. But in South Carolina, that's far. Uh, that's half so the state, was, isn't it? I was really grateful um, when the University of South Carolina purchased the School of Music purchased the same teleconferencing software that the prison uses. And so we were able to start doing classes through teleconferencing. Um, and I started with just the two music leaders. And in that was the fall of 16. In the spring of 17, we added a beginner's class that one of my graduate students taught. And then um, by the fall of 18, um, I took a group of students to the, to the prison, which we can talk about that experience a little bit more. But... Um, so it was just this, I just lucked into this situation where people were asking for music theory knowledge. And um, yeah, that doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every day. And so I'm really <laughs> approached about my music theory knowledge. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't happen every day. Although I will say, you know, I was out in LA um, uh, and I went to the Paramount Studios tour and I was talking to this woman who was, you know, selling me my ticket. And um, she said, well, where are you from? You know, and she's just chatting me up. And I said, oh, I, you know, I live in South Carolina. And I said, I'm a music theory professor. She goes, oh, music theory. She's like, I need to know more about music theory. <laughs> and, and I said, well, why? What is it that you want to know? And she said, right. well, I want to do, I want to do songwriting. And, and I said, well, what kind of music do you like? And she started telling me, you know, she went, oh, uh, Hamilton. I love Hamilton. I said, well, have you seen these series of videos on YouTube? That are, they analyze Hamilton from a mm -hmm. music theory perspective. I think that would be a really good place for you to start. So, um, I just thought, wow, this is so great. These moments keep happening. But I think what your question is, is, you know, how would you go about maybe seeking one of these kinds of relationships mm. or experiences? Yeah. And I think that, um, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a few different ways to do it. One of the other examples of public music theory that I do here in Columbia is I work, um, I, I teach some classes at the Lurie Senior Center, which is a, it's not a residential center. Um, it's a day center. And they uh, contacted me. I don't know how they found out about me, but they regularly do classes like these four week classes. And they said, would you um, be interested in teaching one? And so, um, so then the question, I think if you're ever presented with that kind of situation, the important question and the first question that I asked is, well, what is it that they want to learn about, right? Instead of thinking mm -hmm. of music theory, instead of thinking mm -hmm. as public music theory and that music theory is this fixed body of knowledge that you can deliver to people and they can receive, think of it as public music theory. Mm -hmm. Like what is, the, uh, what is the segment of the public that I'm interested in working with and how might I be able to use my music theoretical knowledge and skills to help that segment of the public. Mm -hmm. I think when you ask the question that way, then all different kinds of things pop into your mind. Um, 
even I, like I, public music and the theory even <laughs> it takes more of a backseat. I think music has to be also before the theory as well, but I don't know. I don't want to interrupt. No, no, absolutely. Um, I think that absolutely very good point. Um, because at Lee Correctional, the kind of music making that was going on there was, you know, not music that is in general, in general, well served by the theoretical training that I've had. Hmm. And so when we started the beginning classes, you know, I look, I'm here in my office at the university and I look at this bookshelf behind me that's loaded with undergraduate textbooks Mm -hmm. and very few, I would say perhaps none of them really served me well as I was thinking about, okay, what is a beginning music theory class going to mean for this student population? And what is it going to mean for the graduate student that has to teach it? Um, And so when those questions became the initial questions or the most important questions, um, then the world of music theory just opens up so much bigger and you have such a, uh, such a, be- uh, just a more encompassing understanding of what we mean when we say music theory. But I, I agree with you. The issue of serving the music and serving the public is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I've thought many times about how our curriculum is often very sort of keyboard driven or written notation driven and it, it has to be if, you know, if our students are going to go out and pursue careers in music, they have to be really competent at all of those things. Um, but many of the students that come into my program, um, we have a large music business program. A lot of them are really extremely proficient guitarists. And um, they end up, of course, having to take like fundamentals because they don't read staff notation even though maybe their ear is very developed or their, you know, ideas about music are very developed. And my colleague here and I have talked many times about how do we develop a fundamentals class that will serve those students better and capitalize on the things they already know, rather than sitting them, taking them from a position of, well, you got into our program, you play really well, we're excited about your skills, but now we're going to sit you down and tell you that you actually don't know anything at all. And you're going to have to start at zero and learn like ABCD. They do have to learn that, but how can we, they do know a lot, you know, how can we capitalize on that? I think that's, you know, when I think about inmates in a prison who are making music and really excited about making music, probably a lot of them have that sort of experience. They're guitarists or they, they just have a natural ear about it. And learning to capitalize that is the best on that is the best kind of teaching, I think. Yeah. And I, I have thought about this issue a lot about the necessity of staff notation. Um, and for certain musicians, it may not even be necessary for them to read staff notation. I think it's important for them to know staff notation. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be a kind of fluent reader of staff notation, that may not be the most important thing for their music making. I've been thinking about that a lot because we've mm-hmm. added musical theater and music industry mm-hmm. degrees. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to start accepting students into those gre- degrees in fall of, of 2021. And so thinking about our curriculum and how well it would serve mm-hmm. that student population is really being informed by my experience at Lee Correctional. Um, I mean, I think there's certain kind of fundamentals that we do want them to know, but I also Mm -hmm. think, um, you know, it just allows us to rethink things that we think are very, very important. And they, and maybe that knowledge can be demonstrated in other ways. Maybe that competency can be demonstrated 
in other ways. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's something I'm thinking a lot about as well. Yeah. Some schools solve the problem by having the students separate, you know, there's separate tracks for music theory, the, the theater people, the industry people take one kind of music theory and the other students take another kind. Um, we don't do that. And I'm actually really glad we don't because our students all mix together in this sort of wonderful way here. And we end up with a couple of years ago, we had a music business major who wrote a musical in collaboration with one of our composition students and then a really fine like harpist and pianist. Right. So like all sorts of mixing together that might not have happened if they hadn't been sitting next to each other in eight o'clock music theory, you know, so I like that they're all in the same room, but it does create that challenge of how do we prepare all of them for the things that they need and not just the ones that look the most like me, maybe, you know, the ones whose careers are on the same trajectory that mine has had, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing is um, we don't know what their career trajectories Mm -hmm. are going to be. Exactly. They don't either. When I went to undergrad, (laughs) I was not going to be a music theorist, you know? Same. Um, Yep. And so uh, I've been thinking a lot about that too, about, you know, is, is there a kind of sweet spot of a very generalist music theory that's maybe one or two semesters that would really benefit all of the musicians, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and what do we, you know, what do we allow or um, what is it within the curriculum that we maybe de-emphasize that has been emphasized mm-hmm. in order to make yeah. room for that? Yep. And just making peace with that, like that that's mm-hmm. going to have to happen and that's okay. Yep. You know, because yeah, there are, yeah. there are other benefits on the other side. Yeah. It's like, we've all been gifted this like Faberge egg and this, yes. like, just be careful with it. Don't drop it. It has to stay exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's great to hear all these voices are like, no, we need to, we need to maybe not smash right. the egg. The metaphor is breaking down, but you know. <laughs> really really uh think outside the box so i'm curious what what music theory did the the inmates at lee correctional facility want to learn what was what were the Mm. kind of theory topics that really resonated with them or they're really excited to understand well um the beginning class kind of runs through some similar thing they go through a cycle and people kind of come in and they they learn that and then they might move up to the advanced class um, but it's focused, uh, the beginning class is focused a lot on uh, rhythm and meter, like being able to tell if something is in a, uh, what we would say is a, in simple or compound mm-hmm. meter, but we talk about feels instead of that, you know, okay. different terminology mm-hmm. for that. Um, and, you know, basic things like, uh, you know, can you feel the beat? And if you can feel, if you can feel the beat, how is that beat divided? How do you, how do you groove? How would you groove to this? Um we teach the Nashville number system. Mm-hmm. So there, there needs to be an understanding of, of chord or triad. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't have to be like three notes stacked on a staff, right? Like that's a very convenient um, visual for someone who's learning to play in the keyboards in the band. Mm-hmm. But if you're learning to play guitar in the band, <laughs> that is not necessarily the most important visual. And so... Um, you know, we do have keyboard handouts, we have fretboard handouts, hmm. um, and kind of thinking, just thinking about these things in different ways and letting people kind of come to them through, you know, and they will often offer <laughs> ideas and that are very interesting, you know, and I think validating those ideas and building on them is a really important part of that process. Um, the advanced class, uh, these are extremely talented musicians. Um, 
And so we've done a variety of things. Um, we usually start each semester and I say, okay, you know, what, what do you guys want to do? Uh, one semester, it was all about, they wanted to learn classical form. That's just what they wanted to do. Wow. So I was like, well, that's something I can definitely do, you know? <laughs> and so we, by the end of the semester, we were looking at, you know, some sonata form movements, you know, wow. I'm sure some of the ones you've all taught. Yeah. Um, I, I remember we did the, the Mozart F major um, that has that descending fifth sequence, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, um, and it's got all those those uh, seventh chords, you know, including the seven seven and the three seven and the six seven, and one of them said, "Now, Danny, you told us classical composers didn't use them kind of chords." You know, I mean, they were, <laughs> you know, because I said, "Well, you know, in classical music, it's really two seven five seven, but not really like seven seven or, or I mean, like major right. seven seven right. or three seven. And, no, you know, yeah. and they called me called me on the carpet, you know, for that, which I really appreciated." Um, showed me a lot about my, <laughs> the biases I was bringing to the situation. Um, but the, the project we were doing with the advanced class uh, before the pandemic uh, hit was um, we, the University of South Carolina School of Music had been able to donate a computer uh, to the music program at the, at the uh, correctional facility that included GarageBand and mm. Finale and some other things. And so um, we were doing a project with our wind ensemble director. We took a small wind group to the facility in the fall of, um, what year are we on now? <laughs> it's, it's, sorry, the 20, pandemic yeah. has gotten me all this. So this was the fall of 19. Fall of 19. Um, we, t we took a small wind ensemble and we played a, a concert. And in the advanced class that semester, we had been talking about instrument transpositions and writing for the instruments that were going to be available. And they had written some short pieces and they were learning to use finale in the process. Um, and it was just a completely different way of thinking for them. You know, um, just, I mean, if you've played piano or, or guitar all your life and all of a sudden this idea of like a single line instrument is such a challenge, such a challenge. And like, you know, well, how can I get it to sound like this? Or how can I get it to sound like that? And we had so many conversations around timbre and articulation and dynamics and these kinds of things that sometimes get, you know, sometimes fall out of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, and we were planned to do a, a concert of their pieces in the spring of 20, but the pandemic hit. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that, uh, you know, we can get on the other side of this mm -hmm. and that we can do that. I know that they were really excited about it. The students who had gone were really excited about it. So but yeah, the, those are the kind of things they just kind of tell me like what they want to do, you know, like, the, like this one semester, it was just like modal jazz that was, they want to do modal jazz, which is something I didn't know very much about. So I had to get educated and I really appreciated that. Yeah. Hmm. That's really great. I, there was one theory three or something one year where I asked them at the beginning of the year, what is it that you want to learn? Like you've had two semesters in music theory. What are you still like? When is she going to tell us about this? You know? And some of the answers I got, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> how am I going to teach you that? Like, I remember there were several along the theme of like, how do I write a song that speaks to someone's soul? And I'm like, I don't know. That's not we don't normally teach that. But I'm like, well, OK, so uh, I got to think about it now. I asked them what they wanted to learn. And if I'm just like, 
you know, that's no good. So well, that's an excellent example of a public music theory question. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, how is music theory going to touch somebody? You know, mm-hmm. how, why does music make us cry? I mean, yeah. these are great mm-hmm. public music theory questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Really I find good. that some of my student generated questions, like you're saying, Jen and Danny, both mm-hmm. that often are like tags on the end of a lesson, you know, like you have that extra five or 10 minutes and you're just communicating, you're discussing something that a student wrote something comes up, this really great question, and then you want to do a mini lecture, you know, or another composition activity, (laughs) I find the next semester that becomes like the main starting point for like that entire talk, you know, because that was such a good question by the student that it almost kind of transforms the way you do it the, the, the next time, in my case, at least. Yeah. I did sort of farm that one back out to them. I think I created a little project where I made them like find a song that really has spoken to you and you have to analyze the song and talk about like, what is it? What is the moment that hits you in that song or whatever? And a lot of it was um, use of seventh chords, modal mixture, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of them chose popular music examples and that was what was getting them were those sorts of things. But yeah, when you ask them what they want to know, it's always, what comes back to you is always really interesting. And I think you're right, Ben, it often ends up being a part of what you do on and on and on from there. And I think we can all think of those pieces for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were, um, you know, not quite sure that this music theory was for us, that there were, there were certain pieces that we just thought, Oh my gosh, I have to know more about what's making that tick or why it's making me feel the way it does. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really great project that you were able to do with your students. It went well. <laughs> yeah, I have to I say, I haven't used it again though in a while. Maybe I'll pull that one back out this spring. <laughs> I was going to say, listening to the group, the collaboration between the students and the inmates, I thought the result was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a video clip that uh, we watched before, and I thought, wow, this is really impressive because. You know, I couldn't really tell, for example, you know, oh, that's definitely the USC students or something like that. I thought, wow, this group sounds great, you know, and uh, I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. So just to give a little context to the listeners, uh, in fall 2018, I taught a course on rhythm and meter, uh, a graduate course here at the University of South Carolina. And then I also, the advanced class at Lee, their topic was rhythm and meter that semester. And near the end of the semester, uh, the two classes met through video conferencing, and um, we wrote some songs together. Really, the, the men kind of started the songs and then gave them to us, and then we kind of arranged around the songs or added, you know, maybe a verse or something like that. Um, but this was an incredibly successful uh, project that we did because we eventually went to the facility and we all performed together. Um, and, you know, I, I had the students at the end of that semester write reflections on their experience. And I, it was just so beneficial for me to read what they had learned, both musical and extra musical from that experience. And uh, I, re, I remember specifically, um, we had a student, he's an organist in town. He's a really fine organist. He had never listened to any rapper hip hop in his life. And as we were video conferencing, um, the men said, 
you know, this song, we should have some rap breaks in this song. Or, you know, we sh- somebody should drop a 16. That's the term. Somebody should drop a 16 uh, here. And, and they were like, do some of the students want to do that? Um, <laughs> and this organist came to me and he said, I really want to do this. He said, I know that it's way outside of my comfort zone. And I just really want to do this. And so he wrote a rap um, and he, you know, he went there and he performed it. He kind of, he had some difficulties, but, you know, he pulled himself back together and he had that experience and he just wrote about what a great experience that was. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, they could tell, I remember there was one point where they could tell that he was like getting nervous about it. And, um, and one of the guys, one of the inmates just came up to him and they said, Hey man, country boys can rap too. <laughs> it was just like this just really beautiful moment of like, we're going to have this shared, you know, right. musical experience today. And so many of the students commented on that um, they didn't feel this pressure to perform per- perfectly, yeah. that they feel mm-hmm. so much of the time. Mm-hmm. And it was such a joyous experience because it was so participatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and they, all those that kind of anxiety that comes with, you know, doing a perfect performance was uh, lifted off their shoulders. So I was really pleased with that experience. I love that so much because mm. I, I love it when students are willing to risk, like to take a risk and just try it because um, you don't know, you don't know how it's going to turn out and that's okay. And, and college is the perfect time to make those types of risks and try things out very low stakes. And so I, lo- mm-hmm. I love the image of a rapping organist. I think that's awesome. <laughs> I just love that. Yeah. And yeah. so um, what kind of, um, what kind of preconceived notions did you have going into that whole project? Mm-hmm. Um, were there some uh, uh, preconceptions that were kind of totally false? That you, you came in thinking, okay, I'm going to be maybe at the stage on the stage or, you know, this, and it's totally that. And, you know, you've obviously shared some things where you're learning from them almost as much as, you know, they're learning from you. Um, but what are some of the ways that you've really kind of changed uh, maybe in your teaching and also just like in how you live uh, based off of these experiences? When I first knew I was going to start doing these classes in the fall of 2016, I had it in my head that we were going to start with the Nashville number system. I'm like, this will be great. This is exactly what they need, you know? And so I had the first class with the two music leaders and I, and I'm like, okay, I got something to show y'all. This is going to just really help you out, you know, in your music making at Lee. And I, uh, you can't share screen because there's all kinds of security things. So you have to just hold hand up handouts up to the, um, to the camera. And I said, you know, this is called the net and, they let me go on for, for just long enough. And they're like, we, like, we got that. Like, like we, like, that's the lingua franca around here. You know, everybody knows that. And, and it just, it, it just hit home to me that I had conceived of this situation is that I was someone who had knowledge mm. and that they were people that were going to receive knowledge. It was just very clear to me, embarrassingly so, that that's, you know, how mm. I had conceived of the situation. And so I was just, I just had to back up and I was like, okay, so let's just talk, you know, tell me what you know about what you're interested in. I'm ashamed to say that's not, that wasn't the first thing I did, but um, I think it speaks to the way I was kind of conceiving this whole idea 
of public music theory and how much I've, my ideas about it have changed through those experiences. Yeah, I, I think about all of us as we're teaching theory, it's, it's about the, the score, right? What's more valuable than showing you this score, this notation? Um, and okay, that's nice, but what does it sound like? How do I play it? All these other things are more important right. questions, you know? Yeah, um, you're reminding me of an experience I had at Lee one time. I was down there for one of the, the Dakota residencies, um, and there was an, a gentleman who I had never seen him before. And I've been there several times and had a good idea of, of the men who were kind of around the music program. So, But people come in and out. You know, some people get out, which is great. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and some new people come in. Um, but anyway, he, he was a gentleman I hadn't seen before, and he was rapping, and um, he had a he had set up his rap in his kind of very traditional like you know just very reliable, and then he had three lines that were in this compound feel in the middle of it. It was like da 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 da, and every time he would get there, he would mess up, and he started getting you know anxious and angry and frustrated, so. Claire, my, my cello colleague, she said, could you, you know, maybe take him aside? And we just kind of sat down and I said, well, tell me about, you know, so his text was the words, right? He had written down the words and that was, that was not just the, the text, it was the musical text, right? Mm -hmm. For him, that was a musical text. And so mm -hmm. I was like, well, tell me about, uh, you know, do you, first of all, do you hear that that's a different feel? And so I kind of said, you know, this is what I'm hearing when you're doing this. Do, do you hear that as a different feel? He said, yeah, that's the place where I have to catch my breath. So he mm -hmm. was conceiving of this fewer divisions per beat as, as a kind of way of catching his breath, mm -hmm. which is his expression in my mind of, you know, the, the notes are just not moving as fast, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I said, okay. I said, well, can, let's talk about how's that different from the other section, and I finally got him to see that, you know, sometimes he's, he's like defaulting to four divisions per the beat. And sometimes he's defaulting to three divisions for the beat. And we did like little L and J dots so that he could kind of see that. <laughs> and then, and so we bracketed that out and I said, so when you get there, just remember that's where, you know, that when you catch your breath, that's where you're going to fill three things. So let's have a different physicality for that. You know, so he was like bobbing his head one way for one section. And then when he got to that section, it was more like a side to side bob. So there's this like this embodiment of the whole thing. Wow. And so it was, you know, it's just to go, you know, he didn't need staff notation. He didn't need mm. um, our traditional rhythmic notation. He, he had a kind of theory of that moment and we fleshed that out together. And that was uh, a really great experience. Well, we are, unfortunately, we're, we're coming to the end of our time already. Like uh, I could ask more questions and talk. Uh, I know. I think we got through like one <laughs> question time. from the actual. Uh, there's list. something else you really. I'm sorry. I I can be quite verbose. No. Is there something else you no, want me to answer no. and do like a short, <laughs> some short clips for you? <laughs> well, we can we can we can we have time for the rapid fire. I think. And okay. so um, mm -hmm. let's see, uh, Jen or Ben, either of you want to go first or? I am scrolling. <laughs> <laughs> scrolling down to the bottom i can go first so what is your go-to non not something you would use in class necessarily like just the thing that's playing on repeat on your phone or whatever right now uh, <laughs> you mean like what am i listening i to? almost use the term 
like guilty pleasure mm. music, but I kind of hate that term because I think it's all okay. I think it's all good. <laughs> um, I'm I'm really bad person to ask this question because all of my listening time usually goes to podcasts. So there's my, nothing wrong with that, Danny. At I'm all. that way too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm, you know, I, I am. I just devour lots and lots of podcasts. Um, so. Uh, Okay, then, favorite podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I did receive Jonas Kaufmann's Christmas album for Christmas. And I oh. actually, I, I know that was getting um, maligned on Facebook for mm-hmm. a single track. But the rest of it is really wonderful, actually. So I, I've enjoyed listening <laughs> to that. Yeah, I thought that was going around YouTube. That was pretty great. But I'm glad the rest of the album is good. All right, my, my question, this is a new one. I think I've ever asked this. Shanker or Riemann? Um, so my my personal conception of tonality is much more Shankarian tonality. Um, I know, of course, Schoenberg's theory quite intimately. Um, but I, I think when I am confronted with tonal music that I have not heard before, I default to a Shankarian mode of hearing. Um, so I'd have to go with Shinker. Excellent. Excellent. All right, I'm man. also going off the book from our post. I want to know, if you could add one musical theater piece to the canon, what would it be? One musical theater piece to the canon? Um, it would probably have to be West Side Story, I think. Yeah. It's incredibly mm-hmm. rich musically. Um I think it's Leonard Bernstein's true masterpiece, actually. Uh, that's a very hard question for me. I, I really enjoy musical theater um, repertoire quite a lot. But uh, that I'd have to say West Side Story. That's yeah, it's great. definitely out of my area of expertise. So I was just curious to ask some, some people as I run across on what they want to <laughs> add. I, I gave a public music theory talk before screening of West Side Story once. So I've even kind of thought about how do you, nice. you know, how do you get this across you know it was during the bernstein centenary and the art house in town was screening west side story so i got to give this 10 minute public music theory lecture to i say now listen for these things when you're watching the movie and i had people come up to me after they say i've never noticed all those connections before so that was you know affirming well that score is just full of all these little little motives right for maria and the different the the games absolutely that's great yeah well, as we're finishing up, uh, maybe let us know kind of what projects you're working on now, uh, what, what things you have um, in the works, and you know, how can people find you if they want to learn more about uh, your work or kind of follow up with other questions about uh, public music theory. So um, my biggest project at the moment is I'm editing the Oxford Handbook to Public Music Theory, which I am really excited about. A couple of people who've already been guests on your show Jenny Beavers and Jenny Snodgrass are authors in that publication. The authors have uh, responded enthusiastically, and it's moving forward at a great pace. So I'm really uh, excited that that will be published, and that um, I hope that that document will be uh, something from which springs a lot more thinking about public music theory. Um, and then I have a couple of other things, I uh, contributions to some collections uh so there's never a dull moment there's there's plenty on the uh there's plenty on my desk but uh yeah i think the of course the big project is the oxford handbook 
And if you uh, want to get in touch with me, you can email me at uh, djenkins at mozart.sc.edu. Uh, or uh, you can find me on Facebook, Danny Jenkins. So I'd be happy to talk to you more. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.